Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having frank and open conversations about building and marketing products and building the businesses behind them. I'll be digging deep into best practices, war stories, and hot takes to try and inspire you to build the right things, build them right, and get them to market effectively. If that sounds good and you're not bored of my voice yet, then why not head over to onenightinproduct.com where you can sign up to the mailing list, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, or follow the podcast on your favorite social media platform and guarantee you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we're back in the same ballpark as the very first episode of this podcast, although we're playing on a different team, talking about automated cryptocurrency trading and building the fintechs of the future. We talk about some of the pros and cons of blockchains, start thinking about painting ourselves purple and blue for NFTs, and talk about how to rationalise a desire for eco-awareness in the world with the burgeoning energy use of blockchain. We also talk about a new approach to burning products, the DDDT process, which was self-invented and may even result in a new book, Basecamp Style. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Gabriella Musella. Gabriella is a UX designer, product manager, multiple startup founder and Google Launchpad mentor who started out with a job counting cars on the highway before taking his head for numbers into the world of automated cryptocurrency trading with Y Combinator backed CoinRule. Gabriella describes himself as a digital nomad, radically honest and passionate about the environment. So I'm looking forward to his radically honest take on the burgeoning energy use of crypto. Also hates unfinished things, so I'll be sure to... Hi Gabriella, how are you tonight? Hi, Jason. Hi, glad to be here. I'm good, thanks. Excellent. Glad to have you here. So first things first, you are the CEO and founder of CoinRule. What problem does CoinRule solve for me? We try to level the playing field between professional traders and normal people. So we allow normal people to automate their trading with a simple interface. So you can say something like, if Bitcoin goes down 3%, buy this other coin at a specific price, given certain conditions. And then you press play. And this machine goes on the market and trade on your behalf. So we, you can basically build algorithmic trading in a few seconds. But when I think of automated algorithmic trading and investment and stuff like that, I start to think of high-powered arbitrage, investment companies paying to be as physically close to the stock exchange as possible, baking their operating systems onto the chips so that they can get as much performance out of it as possible. Is that your world? Is it that exciting or is it a bit more laid back than that? A bit more laid back. I mean, we all read the, the beautiful book uh, Flash Boys, right? About <laughs> that, uh, the, the coming of the high frequency traders. And, and that, that's a legit job, right? And the, the, it's a very good challenge. But we are in the low frequency trading field. So for us, you know, an execution happens in one or two seconds, and that's good enough for retailers. So for us, a very good element is actually teaching and uh, having people learn how to trade so they can manage their own finances. So we come from a very laid back, understandable, type of, uh, you know, for the finance. And also, uh, we try to use plain English and to explain, you know, everything that the app is doing for the users. In fact, you can set up your own your own strategies, your own blocks, the condition block, the action blocks, and understand what you're doing. But it's fair to say that crypto can be fairly volatile as well. Do you find that you have to do anything in particular within the platform to try and put guardrails around that, make sure that people don't lose all their money because of bizarre shifts or do you kind of just let people look after themselves and, and hope that it's okay? <laughs> we, we have some measures in place. So, for example, we have one specific functionality that limits the, the amount of coin you can trade, especially if they are like low market cap coin. So, because there is no liquidity. As well as we always, when you select a template, 
we give specific ranges to play with. So you know that you don't need to have like uh, on a specific trend following strategy, you cannot put more than 10% on stake. So you're trying to save people from themselves and save people from the market speculation that happens in some of these coins as well. Yeah, I mean, it depends which strategy you, you want, right? Some people love the volatility. It's a lot of fun. Some <laughs> other people just like uh, they're more like uh, cautious. And are you focusing solely on crypto at the moment or are you offering any other options right now? At the moment, yeah, we are focused on crypto because it's it's basically an unregulated market. So for us, it was a very easy way to go to the market, validate the product and find the product market fit before going to other asset classes. But it's in the roadmap for us to go towards stocks first and then also to do some experiments on the DeFi space. So we are starting with the Solana and, and also with the Polygon. Those are very two interesting chains. But are you worried about regulation? I mean, obviously, it's not possible to regulate the tech, but it's certainly possible to regulate the money going in and out, right? Certainly for the, the, for the average person on the street, at least. Is that something that concerns you and that you have to spend a lot of time worrying about? I mean, not at the moment, but I mean, I'm in favor of some degree of regulations. And then, I mean, especially in our space, you know, when you, when there are a lot of uh, new fi- you know, finance, like startups coming up and new innovations. So actually, we had a, a, a very, very long conversation with the FCA. We managed to get into the crypto asset uh, business registration list. But then since we are not custodial, the FCA told us like, look, you don't need to be regulated, you know, so we're taking off of the list. So it was like <laughs> a, a little bit the, the, the opposite, right? But I think, I think yeah, I mean, it's difficult to, to regulate the, the DeFi space because that's not the new frontier of the, of the crypto market, you know, the staking and staking, the yield farming, the flash loans. It's very complicated from a technical point of view. And the regulators at the moment are not really ready to cope with all that technological advancement. I mean, in the UK, that's basically the, the best, you know, the best financial authority in the world. In some degree, they cover most of the technicalities, but yeah, they're still like years and years away. I, I think regulation will come, especially when uh, we're going to have the, the CBT, the, the, the stable coins that are more become, you know, becoming kind of governmental adopted coins. Well, we'll keep our eyes open. But you're not an exchange yourself, as far as I understand. You're kind of wired up to other people's exchanges and kind of automate the process of buying and selling through those. But do you use any blockchain technology yourself? And if not, have you tried? Not yet, but we are doing a proof of concept on Solana as we speak. You know, Solana, it's great. You can have more than 60,000 transactions per second. The fees are very, very low, like almost like, uh, you know, like cents. And uh, yeah, so it's perfect for our use case. Even if, you know, building on Ethereum will be much more easy because the ecosystem is just huge and now they're moving to Ethereum uh, 2.0. So at the moment, we don't use blockchain. We are building a proof of concept. But also, what I wanted to say is also in terms of exchange, we tried always to avoid regulations. So we tried always to kind of leave the fat, you know, to the others. We get just get the meat, <laughs> right? So on CoinRule, you do the KYC, all the process on the underlying platform. So you, you sign up on Coinbase, on Binance. And then after you can connect those platforms with CoinRule just you know, through a, um, an API key. So it's very safe for the users because we don't touch your money, but also it uh, you know, doesn't give us much liability. So that was a perfect way to start. But, but, but in the future, probably we, we are looking at some new uh, product lines that uh, will involve custodial services as well. I was going to say, so you kind of got the best of all worlds at the moment, but do you really consider yourselves a crypto company yourselves or are you more of a generic? investment platform that just happens to be using crypto at the moment like how much of a crypto fundamentalist would you consider yourself that's a good question i think, I think we are not really fundamentalists at all in fact we just discoped to bit bitcoin from our platform so you cannot use btc as a base currency anymore 
because of some environmental uh, you know policies that we have, but we'll discuss that later probably. Yeah. But at the moment, yeah, I think that's the direction uh, we are taking basically. I mean, we are kind of a bridge between the old world of finance and the new world of finance because we come from a fintech space and we, we do crypto, right? But then in, in the future, we can really just go directly into the DeFi and have a more like tech-oriented approach. For us, it's always important to work on the go-to-market, on the interface, make experience that people use. Then no, no matter if it's, uh, you know, we use a centralized database or DLTs, you know, for us, the technology is just functional to our design-first approach. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because some people will very coherently argue that there's not many problems that a blockchain will solve for you that you couldn't solve via another method. Do you think that's fair for your use cases? Or do you think there's anything that you really think it's going to make a difference? Like, for example, that POC that you're doing at the moment? I mean, on the surface, yeah, you could say that potentially you can do you can do something similar with that. But then if, when you go into the, the actual uh, details of, you know, the hash rate, the transparency the blockchain gives, the reliability, also, you know, the, the speed, there are a lot of small technicalities. And I think we're just at the beginning, right? It's going to be like... Yeah you know, all this finance world is going to be changed by blockchain in the next 20 years. And obviously now some use cases are not really uh, evident to our eyes. But, you know, as soon as they come out, everyone is like, okay, it makes sense. It happened just now with NFTs, right? I mean, art and digital <laughs> art has been waiting for 50 years for something like that. And finally, it, it arrived. You know, since the 70s, we have video art, right? But you can never claim that, uh, you know, an art piece is yours because, you know, all, all, all these certifications are like, you know, half of it are fake, the one that are on the market. So now NFT is actually solving that big problem. And then I, I foresee also more other use cases like STOs, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, some people will also argue, and I'm not necessarily sure I disagree, that NFTs are kind of a bit of a solution searching for a problem in some ways at the moment, given that so much of it is kind of based on other terms and conditions and other platforms like OpenSea and stuff like that. Like this. It kind of seems to be a bit messy a little bit at the moment. And obviously also one of my biggest problems with NFTs at the moment is that every NFT I see, whatever the merits of the technology, all I see are loads of luminous or fluorescent lions and (laughs) monkeys and stuff like that. It's like, look, that's fine, I guess, if you want to spend money on those things. But it just feels like if that's going to be the future of anything, I'd like to see it be the future of something better than that. But maybe that's just me being an old man. I don't know. No, no, I, th- I think that that's fair enough. I mean, I understand. I mean, but, but again, there's a lot of tech people that just throw stuff out there and then try to sell it. But <laughs> it, what happened in the last three months, actually, the mainstream art came into play with NFTs. And I, th- I think like a month ago, there was an exhibition in London. Uh, I didn't manage to buy uh, one piece I really wanted to buy from Kazi Rias. I mean, they're like, on this exhibition, there were like real artists using NFTs. And, and for them, you know, the, the use case is, is pretty strong. So Kazi Rias went up to $38,000. So I, I didn't want to spend that amount. But, you know, he has been doing uh, net art for the last... He's the guy that invented processing, the programming language for art. Uh, so this guy, you know, it's already in the, in the history books and at the MoMA and like in many museums. But let's talk about the environment because you've described yourself as a crypto environmentalist and it's fair to say you don't need to look too far to see horror stories about the energy usage of crypto, either Bitcoin hashing, taking the energy equivalent of Finland up just to keep going, or, of course, NFTs everyone's complaining about now because of the amount of energy it takes to process those transactions as well. Now, you've touched on it a little bit, I guess, with regards to delisting Bitcoin because because you're worried about the environmental impact of that. But do you think that there's anything else that you yourself or that the cryptocurrency community in general should be doing 
to try and make this a bit better because it's always going to be hanging over crypto. Some people are always going to be saying, well, look, this is just bad for the world. I mean, I think the topic, the team is much, much bigger, right? I mean, we, uh, there's a there's a famous program, like quote about like software is going to eat the world. And actually software, you know, requires servers. And there are like a lot of data centers from, you know, everywhere in the world from the big giants actually consuming a lot of energy. Now, if you take finance, the old world of finance, they also consume a lot of electricity. And on the other side, we are building the new world of finance, right? And then we are destructuring all the elements of that, saving accounts, transfers, everything. Now, we started with the Bitcoin that was kind of the first, um, the first milestone, right? And then it's technology that is there and it's old, obsolete, and it's going to die. The same way Napster, you know, 20 years ago died <laughs> and it was the first music stream service. And also, like, I see a lot of people just bringing a lot of improvements. You know, all the consensus protocols, basically the proof of work, the proof of stake, they're like just evolving. Solana uses like two, three consensus mechanisms, and it works very, very cool. And also now we're having all the layer one and layer two solutions, all the abstraction from the infrastructure. So I think all this new, um, the technology is pretty, it's very primordial, it's very new. But I think it's evolving towards a, a more efficient, like, use of the energy. And also... Potentially, you know, also on, on the back of back office, how we produce energy, we will be also able to have more modular energy that comes from different sources, not just from carbon, right? Because it's cheap. I think it's always a mix. Everything needs to converge, right? Regulation, technology, understanding, and also common sense about the specific how much we consume and what we produce with those money. Yeah, the regulation thing is interesting, although, of course, one of the big pros of cryptocurrency is the lack of regulation right so it'll be interesting to see how the crypto community take regulation i mean i've already seen people complaining about any sniff of regulation anywhere so i guess we'll see where that goes but you were recently listed on a list of 21 startups to watch in central europe according to vcs a list published by sifted i believe so how did that come about did they think you were a blockchain company and get caught up in the hype or was there some other way in for you there no, no I, th- I think I think they really know our business because uh, the guy that mentioned us was Z from Octopus. So he, you know we've been at, having so many meetings with them. They wanted to invest in us, and now they're having a little bit more. Maybe they're gonna join the next round. I think that you know we, we always end up on these like crankings, but they mean nothing, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, at the end of the day, we did the Y Combinator. It was an amazing experience. You know, we did like three months, just like very small sprint, and 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 then we did this uh, the demo day. We got I don't know 120 emails from several investors wanted to throw money at us because, you know, in Silicon Valley, that's how they do. Uh, and, and for <laughs> us, we were, as a European startup, we were in a very uh, strange situation because, you know, we didn't want to raise much. So we raised 2.2 million, but we could have taken easily 5 million. But, you know, we just, we are very down to earth, focusing on revenues. We wanted to get just the right amount of money that takes us to the Series A. And, you know, on all this process, obviously, we got a lot of attention, mostly because some of our investors are like the co-founder of Twitch, the co-founder of Fitbit, co-founder of kayak.com, Zilica, the crypto project. So, you know, they kind of, they're, they're in the middle of the ecosystem in, in the valley and, and then, they, you know, they basically, yeah, they move a lot of uh, different needles when, when they actually do stuff. So that's why we got covered a lot by all these uh, nice uh, papers. Uh, sounds really interesting. And obviously you've made some good contacts, but let's talk a little bit about the Y Combinator stuff because that's obviously, you know, lots of people want to get in on that, right? And Maybe not everyone 100% is aware about what that involves. So like, how did you get into that in the first place? And like, how did you come to people's attention? Like, how did you get onto that batch? I mean, YC is the, probably the, the most democratic accelerator in the world. Like, you know, they, they don't take any recommendation. You don't need to anyone. You just apply. If your project makes sense, 
if you have potentially some traction, you get in. So we applied, I think, five times in the previous years. Never got in. <laughs> and this year, since uh, the market went up a lot, we were making something like $150,000 revenue per month. They really wanted us to get in, even if a typical uh, you know, YC company doesn't have customers, doesn't have traction. Anyway, so the batch was huge, like 400 companies. And we were among the top 10 that were generating a good amount of revenues. And yeah, we also didn't want to really get in because... You know, it involved flipping the company from the UK to the US. Right. And first of all, that was an expensive process, very expensive. So expensive. you're US registered now, eh? Yeah, we have all the operation in the UK, but the holding companies in the US. Right. We use the, the, the lawyers from uh, that, you know, uh, Coinbase is used as well. Uh, so, you know, they're very expert in crypto. Super expensive flip, three months of work. But also we didn't want, I mean, we like to be European, right? And, and yeah, you know, sure. yeah, the, the Americans they have their own. Their... I wish I still was. <laughs> I mean, no, we are. We are in the UK. But you know, America they have their own way of doing stuff. And 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 you can see when when you meet the group partner to see they're great, but they're very very like uh, like fast and to the point, very strict about specific processes. Also, on product they they give us a lot of very good uh, ideas how to change the process because obviously, myself as well, I come from a co- more like you know uh, innovation labs in the banks, right? Uh, before like uh, st- you know before I start like messing around with startup and and what happened in the bank you have a typical Kanban wall you have very long sprints you have a team where you have business analyst a copywriter a tech lead a design lead you know a scrum master and in a startup you don't have all these like privileges or all these people specialties yeah. so what YC told us was to focus to focus on on one feature every month and just like prioritize like like hell and it's not easy right. I mean, probably all, all, all the audience of this podcast know how easy it is to prioritize one feature <laughs> against the others and how to fight against the others. So if you're in a big company, it's about politics. If you're in a startup, you're really shouting at each other every time. <laughs> <laughs> because on one side, we have our customer success team. They talk with the users. They know what's needed. On the other side, there's our vision. On the other side, there are all the technical depth and, and, and limitations. And it's difficult to find kind of the, 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 you know, the right puzzle every, in every product planning. But that's what YC really uh, told us. So before we were running, before YC, we were running um, more kind of cautious and smooth product management process. But after that, we just was like, you know what? Every two weeks, all the team works on a big task. That's it. And there's going to be maybe one guy on maintenance fixing the bugs. But that's what, what was the best gift from, from that program, or, you know, together with obviously the funding. <laughs> yeah, that little thing. But I guess that's an interesting segue then into how you're actually building this day-to-day, right? So you've talked a little bit about some of the stuff that you've changed. So what does your product development process look like today? Like, how does product work at CoinRule? Yeah, so what happened historically, we were very bad at doing the right research before the implementation, right? So we were not good at specifying the task, doing all the business analysis, and actually thinking every every, every feature uh, through, like, you know, from A to Z. So what what we came up uh, was with this process called DDDT. I just came up with that, and it, it takes a little bit from everywhere, right? A little bit from uh, the Google uh, Design Sprint, a little bit from the Adobe process. So basically, DDDT stands for Discover, Define, Design, and Test. So it's something that you know it's kind of we all all agree with. It's important, and we have this like at least four sessions before we send a, a big feature into, into production. And, uh, and it's become a thing now. Basically, we do twice a week. The five leads in the team, they come on and actually they just feel free to specify all the tasks. We do user journey together in a collaborative way. We open the mirror board and we all, all actually go there and we specify the user journeys. 
also because at the moment we don't have a designer. So actually we are looking for a design lead. If someone is, is actually listening here and know someone, please get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> Recruitment is always takes most of the, all, all my time at the moment. So it's important. But with this DDT, it's really working very well. I think mostly is also because by nature, I work in a collaborative way because I come from the from a design background. So for me, it's all about workshop, facilitating, having post-its, sketching around. And then, you know, you kind of visualize, you envision the idea, and out of that, you can see how it's going to work. So it's really design-first approach. And sometimes, you know, this approach, it's not so good for the tech side. I just miss some part, you know, we don't specify some part of the backend or maybe some of the data part. But yeah, I mean, it's been working so far. And I think just by a rough estimation, we probably sped up the process by 50%, I would say. Like we just delivered a new payment module like in, in four weeks. It was just amazing. Like just blew my mind. <laughs> so are you then taking a lead on the product side yourself? Like obviously given your UX background, you've got some of those skills already of kind of helping to define what good looks like and doing some of that user research and yeah. helping to try and turn that into things that are real. Like, is that something that you're leading yourself or do you have a product team with you as well? I, I'm, I'm leading myself like the product, as a product lead and then I have all the specialists you know, working with me. I think, obviously, I'm non-technical. So sometimes, you know, we had some problem on more on the technical features, but now we got a new CTO and I think there's a right, the right balance. We have the new CTO, our technical co-founder became CIO. So we have basically two CTOs in our effort. <laughs> and just sustaining me and my and the CEO Oleg as well in delivering the the, the product. So all all the, all the team is is working on product in our company. Uh, even if you're doing a small stuff, like even the customer success team, we get them involved for a lot of different reasons. But mostly user research. So for example, user research for us is like huge. It's huge. Yeah. We talk every month to at least hundred users in a different ways, qualitative, quantitative. We show them like mockups. We have a small community of better users that we just harass them with a lot of questions but they're happy to help. So a user research is very systemic. We, we make space. We make space for the research, for analyzing the research, for, to, for the show and tell where everyone joins. We invite also developers to join the sessions. So it's kind of, it's a, it's a religion in our company. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think just bedding that in with the entire company, I think is really important. And I think your point around like getting everyone involved is, is absolutely essential to, to make good decisions. But you talked about user research, and I think it's fair to say that the crypto crowd can be fairly opinionated. I guess that you're talking at least partly to some of these opinionated crypto people. Do you find that there's a lot of goodwill towards your mission, or do you feel that there's a lot of kind of people that think that they can just do it themselves and they don't need something like you? Or do you just kind of screen those people out? Actually, it's the opposite, you know. What happened, we found that even uh, good programmers, they will come to us and just use us because they don't want to bother to 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 write a few scripts for like, you know, and, and, <laughs> and, 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 and code them for like a few days. So actually, what they, what they like, the fact that we have templates and the fact that we have the head of trading also in the community. So lately, the behavior, we have seen this behavior. People post one strategy and then everyone helps to optimize that strategy and then they use it for the next film. So what we saw is like, yeah, there are a lot of opinionated people in the crypto space, <laughs> but, but mostly they're the non-technical one because the one that are technical, they just heads down and they work and they build their own solution. But what we found with us, you know, we had like family offices using us. Uh, you know, they could just employ, you know, three developers and do themselves, but they don't want to just like the off-the-shelf solution. Yeah. We have had a crypto developer coming to us like, I'm just going to use this. And sometimes they also help with the integrations. So now we integrate with the trading view. It was super nice, super smooth, two-week sprint. We just delivered everything, tested and deployed. 
because two, three users were very technical and they really helped us shaping that, that functionality. So I would say probably in the crypto space, designers, UX people, product people should get more involved uh, with this space and, um, and actually contribute because, you know, uh, the technology is cool, but then you need to make use of it and you need to make it to become human, right? So, Well, there's a lot of talk these days, uh, certainly on Twitter and, and social media around the fact that all this Web3 stuff, which everyone's talking about now, is suffering quite badly from lack of design thinking, right? Because you've just got a bunch of programmers that don't know how to design stuff that are putting stuff out that is functional at best, but doesn't really give you a really good solution. Is that something that you're interested in maybe helping to support, like taking some of your design skills out to the wider crypto community and helping them sort that out? Or do you think you've no, got totally, an, a, enough to totally. do? No, 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 totally. I mean, I already do a, I do a lot of givebacks. I mean, uh, I lecture sometimes at the University of Palermo in Italy. I'm like, you know, mentors at Zilliqa and Google Accelerator. And I'm, I, that's what I do, actually. I do, for example, with Google, I come in on Tuesday when it's like the UX and user research day. So I give a lot back because, you know, it's needed. With every technology, you have always the, the research phase, then you actually have the technology that works. And then to drive the adoption, you need to have the more the humanist, let's say. Yeah. And the humanists, are, you know, designers are kind of part of that. Absolutely. Well, you just mentioned Google, so let's talk about that. You've been a mentor at Google Launchpad for around six years now, I believe, mm. mentoring startups on product and UX. So how did you get involved in that in the first place? And how much time has it taken up? I mean, you just said Tuesdays, but like, is it just Tuesdays? No, it's actually, it's actually uh, at one, one day every three months. It's not really a big ah. deal. It's, uh, yeah, you, get, you know, I got invited by, by some other friends that saw me presenting a keynote in another conference. And yeah, it's like every three months, it happens anywhere in Europe, in Romania, in Milan, in London. We go there, we do the design sprint. They select, I think, 10, 10 startups. Mostly it's like around really uh, prop tech, healthcare. They're like women founders, very, very specific group of people. And I know it's just exciting. I, I do it because of the mentors that I meet every time. They're like just amazing people. And then, you know, you, you can expand your network. But also, you know, I, I ended up also like uh, working with some of the people that I met during the, the accelerator, one of these accelerators. So it's just a great experience. It, it's my way just to, to give back to the community. Oh, no, here, here. I think it's always important to give back and mentor the next generation as well. But is it exclusively like? Are you talking to people from like really early startups? Is that really the type of people yeah, that yeah, go there? Yeah. Is it do you don't get, don't get to work with like any big firms and try and sort their problems out as well? Yeah, you know, I think it's a super early stage startup. Yeah, yeah. sometimes they're like really at uh, business model canvas level, you know, where they're still figuring out the market and everything. I think now they have also a program for it's called kind of Google Scale Up or something that's more for uh, post seed uh, companies. But yeah, it's very early stage. I think that's where where. Uh, my my also personally where I have like uh, most fun because you can do like a huge blueprint of the service and you can really shape the idea from scratch, especially the monetization model, the pricing, because that's something at early stage companies don't really think about monetization. That's a big problem. You know, we can run so many experiments on pricing and we do at CoinRule, we do like crazy experiments for the pricing. Uh, but then, you know, we really thought about those uh, very, very from the first day because I mean, I really care about revenues. That's my only metric I care about CoinRule metrics and also like weekly active users that basically means revenues as well that's fair enough i think it's always important to have a small set of metrics that you care about rather than trying to track everything as well but it's also true that coin rule isn't your first startup you've had a couple in your time with fintech and interestingly fashion tech as well which i could probably sign up for and get some hints but with those startups have they all been glorious exits or 
terrible mistakes or a bit of both? <laughs> oh, oh gosh, no, no, no. That'd be like a disaster. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's say they've been very good learning experiences. I mean, where do we start? So the fashion one you were mentioning, I come from a family of hairdressers. It's like five generations, a typical Italian story. So at some point, I wanted to mix up my technological uh, you know, side with my, my hairdressing experience. And uh, yeah, so it was a Uber for addressing. In that case, I mean, the business, you know, was was kind of taking off. It's just that I didn't, I didn't like the the space. There was no founder market fit. That's also very important. Founder market fit. You know, it's very that kind of space. It's very operational. It's very the growth is very organic. So I wasn't feeling really stimulated. So I just closed the business and we pivoted to a specific user need that then became the second startup. That's uh, Paylinko. So that was solving. Mobile payments for contractors and sole traders. We were in space uh, together with some app, iZettle, those, those sort of machine where you can accept payments on the go. And that one really failed because of I, I didn't manage to recruit the right people, and uh, I was not really self-disciplined. So I think that those were the main the main uh, learnings. Also, I mean, my uh, my co-founder got deported. <laughs> <Very Huff. great. laughs> She was this uh, Chinese lady, and uh, yeah, she had to go back because uh, her visa expired. I mean, in, in startup world, all sort of things happen, like, uh, <laughs> and it's 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 nice to you know to remember, uh, you know, remind this time. But uh, actually, it's very painful. It's it's physically painful. Sometimes you know you just you cannot eat because you're just like too in the flow with the, with the team. Or sometimes you know, especially at the beginning, you have a nine to five job, and then at five starts your startup job. So yeah, uh, that's the beginning, right? So the first six months is always help because you need to set up the company, but it's good to have still cash flow coming in. And after uh, going uh, then full-time on your startup, it's also quite difficult to do. A lot of people don't do the jump, but uh, th- that's the important part, actually, to be able to give yourself you know, six months to start a business, but then one year to, to actually make it like, you know, run and make, you know, generate the first revenues. So I've seen a lot of cases where then the founders, after the first six months, they were not brave enough to jump full time into that ventures, and uh, I was the opposite. I was always jumping too early, so it was extra stress on me because not having cash flow coming in can generate a lot of anxiety. Yeah, so you've mentioned cash flow a few times, and it's obviously something that you're really conscious of in your startup as well. So, is that your biggest takeaway or biggest piece of advice for early stage founders, or have you got anything else that you think is more important than that to concentrate on? I think. I mean the. Very early stage, yes, totally. The first, uh, the first year of the company, yes, cash flow, it's important. Just need to get out of the water and survive. And then after that, what we do now, we focus on color, for example, it's in three pillars. We have a pillar, people, data, and experience. Those are our three pillars that we focus on. So basically, every day we interview like five to six people. I make sure that uh, the, the, you know, the product experience advance uh, every day and, and also that in terms of data, we try to monetize those data. Now, I know that we are sitting at the moment in Conrul on a, on a huge amount of data that we can really, really use, uh, monetize, you know, in terms of what people, uh, what strategy they put in place, how do they share data, how, what are the profit, you know, and we can really monetize those one and understand. In fact, we are, we are recruiting for a data scientist. But for early stage startup, you know, the first step is, you know, survive. First, because the first year is just like ninety percent flip; they just get wiped out. And yeah, don't go full time uh, straight away. Have a little bit of buffer between your five, nine to five job and uh, going uh, you know full time on your startup. 
Excellent. We'll share that with the relevant people. And you've created your own framework, as you said before, your own way to define product features, DDDDDT or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a book coming on that? You know, maybe you can do the Basecamp thing and come out with some new transformative book for the product community? I think yes. Uh, also, my co-founder would be happy about that. Probably we write it together. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think totally, totally. At some point when I have time, yeah, I'll think I'll put everything uh, on paper. I, I, I document everything, so there's going to be a lot of materials that we can, we can, uh, you know, we can use for that. There you go. I'll check Amazon and keep in the loop. But you know what? We should find a better name. I mean, DDDT sounds like a disease. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or, yeah, chemical or something. Yeah, no, we need to yeah. we need to do another design sprint just to come up with a new name, right? Exactly. Where can people find you after this if they want to chat to you about crypto, about NFTs, I guess, or anything about CoinRoll or entrepreneurship in general? They just write me, uh, gab at coinroll.com, or, uh, you know, just find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm usually Fresh Muse, Fresh Muse. And uh, yeah, just chat to me. It's nice. We always have a lot of, uh, we go to a lot of events. I'm myself a digital nomad, so I always go, I know, I was supposed to go to Lisbon now, but I'm actually going to Czech Republic because my co-founder is getting married. But usually I go to one place for a conference and then I stay one month there. So I actually meet all the people in that ecosystem. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes and then obviously people come find you and we'll see what magic happens. Well, that's been a very interesting chat. So obviously really grateful you take the time to take us through some of your journey and some of your thoughts on startups and crypto in general. Hopefully we can stay in touch. But as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much, Jason. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and make sure you share it with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night. <laughs>